One of the most important things we do for our health every day is brush our teeth, yet most of us don't do it properly. Quip is a better electric toothbrush created by dentists and designers. Quip was designed to make brushing your teeth more simple, affordable, and even enjoyable. And now I have to do the thing where I'm honest with you. So Quip sent samples to me, and I was not around when the samples came. And so my husband was the one who started using Quip. And I've been doing these ads kind of based on his experience because they only sent the one sample. They sent another sample, and wow, this really is a cool toothbrush. <laughs> like, I knew that it was, like, a joy to use because it's beautiful, uh, and, 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 like, I also knew, like, technically, like, has the sonic vibrations, and it helps you brush your teeth correctly, but it feels really cool. I have incredibly sensitive gums. Uh, I've been using it for a few weeks now, and my gums have not bled. God, I hope that's not too gross for this. Um, I hope Quip is okay with me saying that. Uh, but anyway, I have sensitive gums. Uh, I'm, I'm sensitive in general. And this toothbrush has been great. And again, it's kind of just nice to use. It's a nice way to start your day, like by using something beautiful. Quip has a two-minute timer that pulses every 30 seconds to remind you when to switch sides. And Quip doesn't require a clunky charger. It runs for three months on one charge. And since three out of four of us use bristles that are old and worn out, Quip delivers a new brush head to you automatically on a dentist-recommended schedule every three months. That's about when the battery needs to be changed to for just $5. Quip is one of the first electric toothbrushes accepted by the American Dental Association. It has thousands of verified five-star reviews. So that's why I love Quip. And uh, dental professionals also love Quip. It's backed by over 20,000 of them. Uh, it starts at just $25. If you go to getquip.com slash friends right now, you will get your first refill pack for free. That is with a Quip electric toothbrush. So again, it's getquip.com slash friends, G-E-T-Q-U-I-P.com slash friends, and you will get your first refill pack for free. Hi, I'm Anna Marie Cox. Welcome to With Friends Like These, the show where we talk about the differences between us without letting them divide us. This week's show is one of those where I get to cheat a bit and talk to a friend, talk to someone who I, I was really interested in talking to about this, even if I, I didn't have an excuse to record our hour-long conversation. I would talk to my friend Jamil Smith, who is a senior writer at Rolling Stone. And this show is and isn't about Jesse Smollett. I am not even going to give you like a thumbnail description of, of why you've heard of this person. I think I can safely assume you know why he's the topic. And Jamil and I are going to talk about why we shouldn't talk about him. What the real hate crimes are these days. So coming right up, Jamil Smith. Jamil, welcome to the show. Thank you very much. I'm excited to have you back. Not so excited about the topic of the day, uh, which is yeah. I, I think we should talk about false crime reporting. I think that that is definitely a thing we should talk about. I have some statistics here that might help us. Um, 70% of false crime reports are by white people citing a black suspect. An innocent black man is seven times more likely to be found guilty of murder than an innocent white man. Half of all rape accusations that end in post-conviction exoneration stem from eyewitness accounts by white victims and witnesses identifying a black assailant. 
And under New York's stop and frisk policy, 75 percent of those stopped were black or Puerto Rican. Those seem like false crime reports to me. Yes, indeed. (laughs) I mean, the first thing I thought about this morning when I saw the reports about the Chicago police superintendent going off about Jesse Smollett and and whatnot. Um, there are a few, actually a few things that went through my head. Words one is that seemed like he was being essentially tried before the fact. Uh, I think that you know even though this seems like an utterly reprehensible thing to do, uh, just on its face, I think that he is you know do the same thing that all Americans are do, which is the presumption of innocence. Number one. And number two is that the first thing I thought about was the Legacy Museum that I visited about almost a year ago in Montgomery, Alabama. And that was opened by the Equal Justice Initiative and Brian Stevenson, its founder. And that, you know, Legacy Museum honors the victims of lynching. And, you know, of course, the iconography of lynching is what surrounds this attack. You know, the, the rope, the bleaching, you know, the the things that he used essentially, ostensibly, you know, allegedly to, you know, basically couch this attack as, as, as a racist thing, as a racist happening. And, you know, part of me wants to just say, like, look, you know, what good is prison going to do? Just, you know, force him to go down and take a look at, you know the the dirt you know from those those lynching sites force him to go down and 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 look at the names on those blocks that uh are are hanging uh, at the memorial uh you know every county of every state uh where those lynchings happened um even the names that we don't know yeah and i i, I thought about that but it, it, i also think in just in terms of what you're saying the crimes, the quote unquote crimes for which these people were lynched are so often not crimes at all. <laughs> or they weren't they were they were crimes that actually uh, were false accusations. And I thought about Emmett Till, mm-hmm. you know, he's falsely accused of hitting on a white woman. <laughs> yeah. you know? And and this and for that, he paid for, you know, he paid for that with his life. And and so so many people. Um, in the history of this country have been brutally slain for the crime of simply being black and being in the wrong place and being the, the target of a white person's ire uh, that, uh, you know, listen, you know, I'm not trying to forgive what Chelsea Smollett has allegedly done, but I'm simply trying to put it into context. And that's what I, I think my, my hope for this conversation was. And I, you mentioned um, uh, false reports, you know, of the, of the more common variety, the existing while black. Um, and it's interesting, if you do a Google search right now, as I did, for, you know, false reporting of, of crime, the first hits you'll get are like the news reports, of course, right, um, right. about this in Chicago. But then you start to see um, reports of Barbecue Becky and, and Permit Patty and a whole mm. string of, of stories about black people calling for uh, more attention being paid for, to false crime, false crime reports. You know, this is actually an issue. Like when people are like all mad about ha- Jesse Smollett having wasted the Chicago police's time. Like I'm, I'm curious, did Barbecue Becky pay a fine? Was, was she? Did she get, she get a mugshot? 
you know, mm, like right. there are people wasting the police's resources all the time um, by calling in uh, crimes that aren't even crimes. Like that's right. that sort of false crime report, you know, not just ma- not just making up a crime, yeah. but calling in someone for the crime of existing. And not just wasting police resources, but potentially putting people in danger. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, there's a case back home in, in my hometown of Cleveland. Uh, this young man uh, was mowing lawns for money in a suburb uh, of Maple Heights and simply literally running a business of landscape business. Young man, uh, I think he wasn't even a teenager yet. And a white neighbor called the cops on him <laughs> after he, you know, essentially, I think, mowed a little bit of her lawn. And I guess I edged a little bit of her lawn in the process of mowing a part of her neighbor's lawn. and. You know, you didn't call cops on a 12-year-old kid in the same town that Tamir Rice was shot in? I I was going to say, talk about another false crime report. Tamir Rice was playing with the toy gun. Right. Right. (laughs) And And, and so, yeah, I mean, this is, you're essentially, you're not just, you're not just reporting a, you know, a crime falsely. You're not just wasting the resources of the police that could be better used elsewhere. You are potentially putting someone in danger. And that to me is a much more egregious misuse of police resources than what happened with Jesse Smollett. Now, here's the thing is that police have to take accountability in this case for their own misuse of resources. Now, with the same amount of resources been allocated for a regular Joe who Mm -hmm. accused someone of this kind of attack, if someone hadn't been on Empire and said that they had been attacked in the early hours in a Chicago street, would they have had all these man hours, uh, <laughs> you know, dedicated to their case? It's worth asking these questions. And I think it's, you know, all these, you know, the very first thing that the police superintendent says that I wish the, the victims of gun violence got this much attention well, you're the police superintendent. Give them that much attention. Yeah. It's not up to the media. It's not up to the press to give them that much attention. Yes, we can do our part. But, it, I mean, it is up to the police. Give them that much attention and stop shooting them while you're at it. I was going to say, who gave who did more damage to Chicago's reputation? Jesse Smollett or Laquan McDonald? Right? Like or Jason Van Dyke. Yes, sorry, not. <laughs> yeah. Paul McDonald didn't do the harm. I, I should say this. His story yeah. um, did that harm, and, and and this sort of brings us around to to how people. So I think so. We've covered. Yes, there is a real problem of false crime reporting. Now the, let's address kind of the other another part of this equation, which is there is a real hate crime problem. Um, Indeed. I will just do some, I have some more numbers handy. There's a 17% increase in hate crime reporting last year. Uh, just over 7,000 crimes recorded in the FBI's database. But that database is um, considered to be a conservative estimate. Another government bureau, the Bureau of Justice Statistics, did a survey of various populations. And their estimate for the annual number of hate crimes in America is 250,000. Mm-hmm. And the increase in the number of hate groups mm-hmm. continues to rise. I mean, you're thinking about the, the you know, and it, that is not a coincidence. Just, and we're just thinking about what has just been released, uh, re- revealed, I should say, in the last couple days. Mm-hmm. This member of the United States Coast Guard, 
uh, Christopher Hassan, lieutenant, <laughs> caught in his home with any number of guns, targeting Democrats, targeting cable news hosts, uh, all supposed enemies of this president, uh, referring to Senator Elizabeth Warren in a derogatory racist language that echoes that of the president. Uh, I believe Ilhan Omar, who's my congressman, by the way, congresswoman Ilhan Omar, mm-hmm. um, was on his list. His target list was the list of people you hear their president talking about. Like he took his orders from our commander in chief. Right. And in, in whether or not the president would like to take responsibility for that is almost irrelevant. The point is, is that we need to, you know, frankly, as, as, as members of the press, you know, I think it's our responsibility to, to, to draw the correlation between what the president is saying, uh, not simply about, um, you know, members of Congress, but also, frankly, about us. Mm-hmm. Uh, and what people on the extreme right are doing in response. It's not simply a matter of people saying mean things to us. Yeah. That we can handle. People are getting guns and training to shoot people and to kill them. And that is a part of this culture that we should not have to accept. I was going to add that that Bureau of Justice Statistics survey estimates that 90 percent of that 250,000 hate crimes are violent crimes of some kind. And the FBI statistics are sort of interesting because FBI statistics tend to be the kinds of things that I think we may stereotypically think of as hate crimes. They get reported like the swastika on um, somebody's door uh, or somebody being called a name like that gets coverage sometimes. But right. these crimes that the Bureau of Justice Statistics has, uncovers are interpersonal crimes, um, crimes in which two people kind of, you know, someone is attacked for their identity. Mm-hmm. And right. it, it's not a case of, of of kind of social media slander or something like that. It's the very real consequences of an environment that the president, you know, incubates. Yeah. And in and, 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 and incubating that environment. What is he doing? He's making it okay for people to express their hatreds, for people to, you know, feel open about, uh, you know, their various, uh, you know, their various uh, resentments and to express those resentments violently. It's, it's one thing to express those resentments through a vote mm-hmm. or through, um, you know, through, various legislative actions or through protest. It is another thing to have a president who, when violent actions break out at his, at his rallies, uh, he openly encourages those actions or when violence, uh, you know, breaks out or is, uh, you know, suppressed, you know, thankfully by law enforcement uh, and that become, you know, that is revealed in the news as it was with Lieutenant Hassan here, uh, he says nothing mm-hmm. in response or he calls them very, you know, so some of them are very good people or what have you. Uh, and he makes excuses for he makes excuses for uh, the people on his side while he demonizes uh, the people uh, who he needs to demonize in order to gain a political advantage and to uh, to further secure his power base. And he does this again. 
just to make sure that he stays where he is to, you know, he to make sure that he stays powerful and he just, he simply doesn't care uh, what the consequences are. Uh, he will say that the press is the enemy of the people. Uh, all he, all he needs to say that he will uh, ban transgender people from the military without, you know, worrying about what kind of consequences that may have for transgender people in the real world. Um, I mean, let's, let's take the focus off us in the press for a moment. Let's talk about what's happening in, in, you know, for, for trans people in this world. I mean, we're talking about visible minorities here um, who are being targeted, who are being killed uh, left and right. Mm-hmm. Okay. Um, you, you know, this is this is a world in which people feel like it's just okay to discard these people's lives uh, simply because they look different or 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 or, or feel like they they don't belong in their you know they don't they don't have the the, the they feel like you know they, they they're they're not as you know they're not born with this the the, the, the gender that they they uh, they they have in their in their soul they, you know mm-hmm. <laughs> just you know what. However, however they, uh, however you know, people may 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 come to to determine who whoever they are is how they determine who they are, and people don't seem to deter- to accept that, and they've determined that it's okay to kill people because of that, and all, day after day we see more and more, especially trans people of color, discarded without you know, seemingly without, uh, you know, without a care and without much notice, frankly, from the media. Uh, and, and that is, that's what I worry about when I see this Jussie Smollett case is n- I worry about the victims that we haven't seen yet. Mm. I worry about the people whom we, who are not going to be believed, not because of Jussie, but because, you know, the people who are just waiting for an excuse to not believe people. You know what I mean? There are people who are just waiting, like there are people who are just rooting for this to be a lie. There are people who are saying, God, I just I just need one to be false so that I can just throw that and use that as the excuse to not believe. Just like you need one false rape case. They need like they needed the Virginia case to be false so that we can just throw that out anytime a woman alleges a, a rape case. So we can just say, oh, no, Virginia. Nope. That's, you know, and it's the same epidemic of of like it's just it's over and over again of this false, really stilted logic of how we how do we get get, you know, get around these people like we just can't we just can't really uh, we can't actually beat them with real logic. So we just kind of like, you know, we're just going to say that the one case rule, it's like the one drop rule. <laughs> it's like, it's I think that's really good. The one case rule. It is, again, I do not plan it, but it's one of those times where I'm actually wearing the item of clothing that was sent to me by the advertiser, Stitch Fix. Stitch Fix is an online personal styling service. I've been using it for years, long before they were a sponsor. Uh, I absolutely love the concept and I love the clothes that they send me. I used to use it as a kind of like refresher of my wardrobe. Like I asked uh, them to send me edgier things that I I might not normally pick out. And I've kind of transitioned into, you know what, send me stuff I'm going to use for years and years and years. Send me like high quality things that may be just a little different than what I see in a store, but that I'm 
going to love and and have in my closet for years. And they made that transition with me. They send me just as cool stuff. Uh, the thing I'm wearing right now is a cashmere a turtleneck. And what's kind of cool about it is a little oversized. It has, um, I've forgotten the actual fashion name for it, but the bat wing sleeves, you know, like, like, to be frank, a kind of 80s style, but it's really cool and like high quality. And I think that it's going to last me for as long as I, I want to wear it. Um, and it's a subtle bat wing, by the way. God, what are they called? Dolman sleeves, I think. That's it. Anyway, Stitch Fix. Uh, you get five items of clothing in every box. You try them on. You pay only for what you keep and you return the rest. The styling fee is $20, which gets applied to anything that you buy. And right now... My listeners can get a special deal. You can get started at stitchfix.com slash friends, and you'll get an extra $25 off when you keep all the items in your box. That's stitchfix.com slash friends to get started today. I will remind you, you can get like one Stitch Fix ever. You can also get them regularly. Uh, You can get them uh, quarterly. You can just sign up and then maybe every once in a while, like for a special occasion, tell them you want one stitchfix.com slash friends for an extra 25% off. Journalist Mehdi Hassan is known around the world for his televised takedowns of presidents and prime ministers. He hosts Upfront on Al Jazeera and is a columnist for The Intercept. And in his new podcast, Deconstructed, Mehdi unpacks a game-changing news event of the week while challenging the conventional wisdom in a tight 30-minute package, a little quicker than what we do here. He starts his show with his take on one topic and what the mainstream news is getting wrong or what context is being missed. And then he goes into a deep analysis and conversation with his guest or guests of the week. And get this, his guests have included Judd Apatow, Bernie Sanders, and Hassan Minhaj. So he kind of covers the gamut, I would say, in terms of who you might be expecting. Um, It's everyone from comedians to politicians to, for instance, Stefan Clark's fiance. So you're going to hear from a lot of different people. And the show has covered such topics as the violence in Gaza from the perspective of Israeli activists against the occupation and, of course, police shootings, as through the eyes of the fiancé of Stevon Clark. Also, he's talked about the dangers of John Bolton with former diplomats. As a Brit and a Muslim, an immigrant based in Donald Trump's Washington, D.C., Mehdi Hassan gives a refreshingly provocative perspective on the ups and downs of American and global politics. Deconstructed is a show that cuts through political drivel and media misinformation to give you a straight take on one big news story of the week. It is out every Friday, just like this pod. You can listen and subscribe at theintercept.com slash deconstructed or on any podcast platform. I wanted to point out that this is insidious and institutional, right? Like the Mm -hmm. default... um, position of of law enforcement and of our culture is that you know people of color are guilty uh that that is that is how they approach those situations um there was a fascinating study that i read about the disproportionate you know number of of false uh crime reports and it got into kind of the logic of, of of why white people are more likely to make any kind of crime report and it's because even if a white person has a negative interaction or unwanted interaction with the police, they tend to see that interaction as proof that the police are doing their job. They, they actually can walk away from that, that, that interaction thinking, well, they misidentified me as guilty, but thank God the police are around. Because, you know, those interactions probably 
let's face it, just aren't aren't as often fatal to, to right to white yeah, people. Yeah, I was going to say they, they you know to they don't they don't see a whole, they don't see a whole lot of uh, you know of, of white bodies perforated on the news. Um, yeah, you know, and 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 that when you when you don't have that experience, and, and I, when I say that experience, I don't mean that lived experience in your own body, but I say that it's, a, it's more of a cultural experience that's passed down. I mean, we we wonder sometimes um, as black folks why our our uh, relatives, our older relatives, have been so paranoid, mm. um, or why they why they are so reticent to trust folks, uh, particularly white people, and. You know, because we grow up in more, you know, integrated environments. We we grow up, uh, you know, our our entertainment is more integrated. We our our schools are more integrated. We, you know, we hang around more, more white people, and uh, you know, we, we we instinctively, I guess, you know, we're more inclined to to trust. I guess you could say, wow. and some of us, I guess. <laughs> and you know, there there's some older folks that are like, yeah. Um, I'm a lot more scarred by what what happened, and then you learn and you listen to their stories and you understand. <laughs> you know, when you live through Jim Crow, yeah. you know you can understand why. Uh, you know, you can understand, and then now, I think we're getting a little bit more of a taste of that. And frankly, I think the Trump era is giving the entire country a taste of just how flawed this country is. I think everybody, white, black, uh, you know, no matter what ethnicity you are, uh, you are getting a taste of just how flawed this country is. And, um, you know, I think it is. Uh, I think that I, you it, know, it, it, it might be the only thing that's actually instructive about this time. Yeah, no, I I, I believe, you know, uh, for better or worse, and it's obviously for worse. This is the presidency that we deserved in some on some level. Uh, and it's and if and if anything good is going to come of it, it's going to come from seeing ourselves in the mirror. Uh, yeah. And I guess I should say, as a white person, um, seeing the country for for what it really is. And I actually yeah. want to talk a little bit about lived experience because uh, you said it's not necessarily like your personal lived experience, but I want to ask you about your personal lived experience because mm. you and I got to know each other in the halcyon days of 2015, 2016. Uh, those were more optimistic times, better times. Uh, and, uh, I remember even then learning from you more about kind of like everyday racism, you know, yeah, like the experience of just having to cross the street when some, you know, uh, if a white woman like looks at you funny, right. right. Um, or just I, not feeling, yeah, more, right. more accurately, like, just like, just like, I don't, I just don't feel like I'd. I just don't feel like dealing with this today. Yeah. You know, yeah. sometimes I do it just because I don't feel like dealing with this. Right. That's, and I remember that story you telling me just like, it's not like you're worried. It's more just like, I want to not have this. And it just, I don't even want to have to think about it. Right. Right. Yep. So I know my lived experience in a post Trump or I guess Trump era. We're not post Trump yet. Post Trump election, mid Trump era, maybe. I have seen more everyday racism. I see white people emboldened. I can tell you stories, right, about right. Um, people I know who used to, who I, I knew were conservative. I knew had, let's say, retrograde views about race, but mm. I'd never heard them say something overtly racist. I've now heard those people say things that are overtly racist. And I'm wondering, because we, we haven't caught up, you know, a lot. And I, I'm wondering if this is something that you, in these past two years, is this happening from your point of view, too? 
Well, I mean, I haven't had folks confront me with overt racism. Well, no, that doesn't the, happen. Know. That's only going to happen in the, in the company of safe white people, right? Like that's... Well, yeah. And I'm also a black man of reasonable size. I mean, yeah. people, you know... <laughs> You know, there's, you know, there's, uh, you know, people, people, you know, are, yeah, you, they, you, they, 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 they're, they're wise enough to know that, you know, they don't want a confrontation. Right. Um, but at the same time, I think that, you know, it's always interesting to talk to my white friends about this because, you know, you, to a certain degree, you guys are our secret agents. Uh-huh. I mean, you know, they, um, <laughs> you know, it, it, you, you hear what we're never going to be told. Right. Uh, you know, and I, I remember writing a column, uh, once about how, you know, essentially it's your responsibilities, uh, especially around like holiday time to speak to your relatives about, you know, about these kinds of racism, about dealing with this, because frankly, I don't have these struggles at my holiday right. table. You know, I sit around at Thanksgiving and there are no con- racial conflicts. <laughs> you know what I mean? There are no, there are no, there are no political, uh, you know, tete-a-tetes. Um, you know, we're pretty much all on the same page. You know, that's something I've heard over and over from people of color who've been guests on this show, basically saying, um, take care of your people, right? Uh, Mao Bell sometimes talks about like it being racial solidarity in a good way. Like white people need to police white people. Um, I use the word police there, I guess, with some sense of irony. Um, yeah, no. <laughs> yes, in, 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 in the actual in the actual uh, proper sense of the term. Yeah. <laughs> and I, I wonder because, you know, you and I both I think one of the things that is exciting, also a thing that's happened in journalism that I find exciting is that we talk more about like what people can do. Like we're not just talking about the news. Right. We're, right. Like you yeah. talked about the media needing to to be conscious. And, and, and I also think that I want to call on my fellow well-meaning white people to when someone is racist in front of you, say something. But I think this is actually like pretty important to point out that the hate crimes that we're talking about and the false reports that we're talking about happen in part because of the president. Yes. But they also happen in part because good white people say nothing. You know, Mm -hmm. Um, they happen because, you know, you were talking, you were speaking very passionately and correctly about um, the incredibly tragic consequences of trans discrimination. I know that I, there are people who feel uncomfortable talking about trans issues. It's because it just like, weirds them out or something. So if a joke is made or a, a position, they, they're asked about their position on it, maybe they don't say something, right? Like mm-hmm. this stuff exists in our everyday conversations, yeah. And we we have some responsibility there. Yeah, and I think you know, to to a large degree I I listen. I mean, there's there's points in all of our lives where we have to get over ourselves, you know. Uh I mean, you know, there was a point early in my life, you know, you know, I had to sort of get over myself when it came to, you know, uh homophobia. You know, I think there's a point where a lot of us had to get over ourselves with regards to different uh aspects of uh, you know, cultural biases and whatnot. But, uh, you know, I think that, you know, we are all grownups at this point. And, uh, you know, if you, if being, uh, conversant about trans issues weirds you out, um, I really don't have a lot of sympathy for you at this point. People are out here dying, you know, people are out here being abused and bullied and, uh, and it's simply because of who they are. It's simply because they are existing. 
And we are having, we have a government in place that is now legislating that bullying. Essentially, uh, we, we have a government in place that is legitimizing that through policy uh, and is saying that it's OK to do this uh, because these people are different. We're saying it's OK to exclude them from the military, to tell them where they can use the restroom uh, to, uh, you know, to basically, uh, you know, marginalize them from uh, different parts of society uh, because of who they are, because of who they love. And because of how they identify, um, you know, I, at, at some point they are going to come for you too. Just keep that in mind. <laughs> I think this might be a good place to take a break for a second. Um, let people kind of marinate with that. Uh, we'll be right back. <laughs> Robinhood is an investing app that lets you buy and sell stocks, ETFs, options, and cryptos all commission free. While other brokerages charge up to $10 for every trade, Robinhood doesn't charge any commission fees, so you can trade stocks and keep all of your profits. Plus, there's no account minimum deposit needed to get started, so you can start investing at any level. The simple, intuitive design of Robinhood makes investing easy for newcomers and experts alike. View easy-to-understand charts and market data and place a trade in just four taps on your phone. You can also view stock collections, such as the 100 most popular. With Robinhood, you can learn how to invest in the market as you build your portfolio. Discover new stocks, track your favorite companies, and get custom notifications for price movements so you never miss the right moment to invest. Robinhood is giving listeners to with friends like these a free stock, like Apple, Ford, or Sprint, to help you build your portfolio. Sign up at crookedfriends.robinhood.com. That's crookedfriends.robinhood.com. I love that I've been given this ad to read to you because it says something about the new year. And here we are in February, almost March. And I want to remind you yet again, January 1st is just another date on the calendar. You can choose to establish a new habit. You can make a new year's resolution any day you want. That can be the first day of your year of doing it. And when it comes to your physical and mental health, why wait? That's why we're excited to partner with Calm, the number one app to help you sleep, meditate, and relax. If you go to calm.com slash friends, you'll get 25% off a Calm premium subscription, which includes hundreds of hours of programs, including guided meditations on issues like anxiety, stress, and focus, and a brand new meditation every day called the Daily Calm. There's also sleep stories, which I confess I haven't used, but I'm so intrigued. They are bedtime stories for adults designed to help you relax before you doze off. Head to the lavender fields of France with Stephen Fry or explore New Zealand with Jerome Flynn from Game of Thrones. They also have Bob Ross talking. It sounds delightful. There's also soothing music, breathing exercises, gentle stretches to relax your body, and more. Again, for a limited time, with friends like these, listeners get 25% off a Calm premium subscription. If you go to calm.com slash friends, that's C-A-L-M dot com slash friends, get unlimited access to all of Calm's content today at calm.com slash friends. Give yourself the gift of Calm. And we're back. Jamil, I actually want to return to that idea that, you know, all of us... I think many of us um, experience uh, the oppression of this administration in one way or another. 
And that has actually put me in mind of something I saw you tweeting about. I'm going to ask you to expand about, which is that Ralph Northam has has some, had something of a rebound in the polls. <laughs> now you connect those two. I know. I think you see what I'm where I'm going. So yes, yes, I do. <laughs> Please expand. So as uh, there's been a couple polls recently that have shown that Ralph Northam enjoys uh, a fairly significant advantage amongst African-American Virginians in terms of favorability. Uh, Previous poll had him at 58% of favorability amongst African-Americans who say that he should remain in office. A new poll that Politico reported on earlier today, uh, this being Thursday, said that uh, about 56, if I remember correctly, uh, 56% of African-Americans believe that he should remain in office. Now, Politico reported this rather uncritically. Uh, They essentially positioned this as saying that he has recovered from the scandal, that he has Mm -hmm. weathered the storm. And I thought that that was a rather ridiculous way to position this. Mm Mm-hmm. Uh, I thought that it certainly did not take into account the fact that African-Americans throughout, frankly, American history have had to be pragmatic about how we use our politics. And I think Virginians right now, particularly African-American Virginians, have to be extraordinarily pragmatic because Ralph Northam refuses to resign. Justin Fairfax, the lieutenant governor, refuses to resign despite being uh, credibly despite, accused. Uh, having I to would say credibly accused uh, by two women of uh, sexual violence. Uh, the attorney general, Mark Herring, refuses to resign despite admitting himself to <laughs> having. Uh, you know, uh, dabbled in blackface uh, when he was 19. <laughs> you make it sound like a hobby. Dabbled. Well, just dabbled, dabbled. a bit. <laughs> well, considering, well, can, I mean, yeah, you know, yeah, I, guess yeah. You, I love how it was once described as dark makeup. Dark uh, makeup and Times. dabbling. I dabbled in dark, dark makeup. makeup. <laughs> and uh, yes, yes. And, um, and the fact that, you know, I mean, Northam, Northam actually had a chance to weather, actually weather the storm uh, credibly. Um, had he just simply apologized at the beginning and mm-hmm. said, look, uh, you know, I put a picture of uh, myself uh, either as a Sambo or as a Klansman, one of the two. I, you know, he still hasn't identified himself as either one um, on my yearbook page. Um, this I, I was also nicknamed Coon Man for a particular reason that I still haven't yet explained. And. I apologize unreservedly for this it being in my past and I look to, you know, make amends in any way possible and look to engage in a, you know, respectful and open dialogue about all of that. And he could have done that. He could have done that. But instead, he tried to do the 180 and pull the shaggy defense and say it wasn't me. What I find fascinating about that is that he basically is doing 
the I have I need to learn more and uh, I want to start a dialogue thing without having admitted he did something wrong. It's weird. It's like yeah. Or he admits to the Michael Jackson thing, but somehow I think still hasn't really fully like grappled with that. I, and I guess right. I want to I want to make really clear the point I was making about the system of oppression that a lot of us are feeling in this so-called, you know, this apparent rebound in Northam's polling, which is that we sometimes cannot be picky about our allies, unfortunately. Like, right. it, it, I hate this so much. I hate it. I hate it. I hate it. And this is actually a theme <laughs> of the program that right. you might sometimes have. When do we decide to be picky? That's actually the question that I think about a lot. Is when right. do we decide some an ally has has crossed a line? I, for one, would have thought that blackface was crossing a line, but oh, blackface certainly <laughs> crossed the line. I mean, Northam should have resigned. Yeah, um, Northam, Northam, to me, lost all credibility. Uh, he lost all moral uh, credibility uh, to govern mm-hmm. uh, the moment that yearbook page showed up. Mm-hmm. When you have a yearbook page with your name on it. Uh, that you ostensibly controlled uh, and it has a picture of a smiling Sambo next to a guy in a Klan outfit. Uh, I mean, you should not forget the Ku Klux Klan are, is a terrorist group. I, I, that's, it's not something that, you know, you dress up at, at, as a Halloween costume. You know, this is something that's a very serious thing. And I, it was not handled Either in, you know, certainly in that photo or in the apology with the seriousness that it required. And he should have resigned. And but here's the here's the rub. If he resigns, then you have Justin Fairfax. Well, here's the guy who's credibly accused of sexual violence. Well, if he resigns, then you have Mark Herring again, blackface. Uh, If he resigns, well, then you have a Republican speaker of the House. And then he becomes the governor of Virginia. And a lot of Democrats, especially black Democrats in Virginia, do not want that to happen. And you can understand why they may be willing to essentially suck it up uh, for the one term. They are term limited in Virginia to one term. Uh, Suck it up for the one term that Ralph Northam has to serve uh, and get whatever democratic policies uh, that he's willing to offer up. I mean, it does seem like he's ready and willing to do black folks bidding. <laughs> to, uh, he's going to just do whatever. I mean, he's going to do everything looks like short of reparations to maintain their favor. Uh, and, you know, they may be willing to, you know, squeeze that orange as much as they can to just make sure that they get whatever concessions they can to make, you know, it's essentially help. Uh, who'd have thought that would be know, how it worked out, right? Who'd have, I, who'd I have mean, thought that what I, we need I, is more I, people I, who have a clearly racist um, acts in their past and we'll just get them. <laughs> it's, it's astonishing, really, yeah. to be honest with you. But uh, I mean, you know, if you just apologetic racist Democrats. Maybe that's the new. Uh... <laughs> Speaking of Elizabeth Warren. <laughs> Oh, 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 Senator Warren, I I do not ascribe to that uh, description. Nope. Uh. Well, actually, it also, you know what? I'm I'm not calling her racist. And actually, let's I should be clear on this show in general. Like, I do try to not call people racist. I mean, I guess maybe we do. But people exist within a, a system of white 
supremacy, right? And I think what Elizabeth Warren is guilty of, to the extent she's guilty in a whole, you know, can talk about that too, it's that she participated in that system when she, you know, ta-da, unveiled her Indian heritage, American Native, Native American heritage, right? Like, she was not acknowledging the damage that white supremacy has done to that population. Mm-hmm. And in fact, was perpetuating right. certain stereotypes. Um, but <laughs> she's pro- <laughs> I think she might be the only presidential candidate who's now actively listening to Native peoples, right? Like, that's now part of her campaign, so there's that. And also, I was going to say, she came out today in favor of reparations. So, you know, mm-hmm. I mean, if what we That's have compelling. to do is find white people who feel really guilty about shit <laughs> 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 in order to, like, move the ball forward, like, and it's maybe it's not like woke, well-meaning white people who are going to move the ball forward as far as undoing white supremacy. Maybe it's... W- kind of relatively unwoke white people who feel super guilty who are going to move the ball right. forward. That's my well, new theory. Here's the thing. I, I, I do it is is <laughs> as as amused as I am, uh I do think that white guilt has a is a short shelf life. Okay, we gotta do because, what we can then. We gotta like act. <laughs> I think <laughs> white guilt I think white guilt does have uh I think it has a shelf life in, in as much as it uh it be it, it, it you know it As it proves politically speaking, Mm -hmm. I think that, you know, the moment we become outnumbered um, as, you know, as as marginalized people, um, then then that guilt subsides Mm. magically. (sighs) I mean, there's a story in The Times that uh, said that, you know, Democratic voters went on on the trail, don't seem to care much about this Native American story. And I don't know if that reflects in the deep recesses of Senator Warren's consciousness. Um, I mean, I've, I've had off the record conversations with the Senator about this, which I will not share, but um, out of respect for that, for that confidence. But I mean, she has read my piece about this, my criticisms. And as you know, I, I, I know that she has taken those to heart um, and uh, we, we've had respectful conversations about it. But my thing is, I do feel that, just to conclude on that, I do feel like she has apologized eventually in the way that she should have apologized. Yes. yes. I want to be clear. Like, I don't, again, I don't, I do not need yeah. to say that she is racist. No, it's, no, no. I, I know that. I know that. Yeah. But and, my, I, I, I know that was, I know that was injustice. And she but also the illuminated is, the issue in a way that hasn't, you know, really been on front pages before. Right. Like. Right. It, 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 it not no necessarily the way that we need to. Right. Or we, maybe that that indigenous communities would have preferred, but certainly it, it was illuminated. Now, what we need is for that illumination to manifest in policy improvements that benefit those communities. And that's that's the rub. And so, you know, I think that, you know, we, these flashpoints of identity conflict, you know what I mean? That they, these, these flashpoints of white guilt that manifest themselves in headlines um, and an apology in campaigns, they need to manifest themselves in more than just these moments of, you know, that, that of rhetoric. They need to manifest in policy proposals that become real things. And I just 
I, th- I think, frankly, folks are a little bit jaded and rightfully so. Uh, they've been burned. And I just think the folks are going to need to see a little bit more from folks um, other than saying, you know, they're saying, oh, I'm sorry. Oh, I, you know, uh, you know, I think that, you know, that's I think it's a big reason, frankly, that Joe Biden has not entered the race. Uh, they would need to hear a lot more than I'm sorry for Anita yeah. Hill uh, and, and and a lot of other stuff than. You know, you're going to need to hear a lot more than that. And I think, frankly, it may be a reason why some folks didn't show up for Hillary Clinton, you know, in 2016. Because definitely. Oh, well, you know, like, well, not not just because of super predators necessarily, but maybe because, oh, hey, uh, you may be saying all this great stuff about race. You know, you may be telling white people to to get involved in the struggle for racial progress and all that. But uh, we've been burned too many times before. Um, I'm sorry, you know. And I think you and I had this conversation. I had this conversation with many people after the election and talking about how our largely white mainstream media sort of missed Trump. And uh, I believe it was our own Ira Madison that that told me that put it to me this way, which is that if you tell people of color that the big danger with the other candidate is that that person's a racist, it's hard to consider that like new or alarming. Right. Like right. And, and, and that, that is that, is, that nerve has essentially been deadened. Yeah. With Trump, because it's become a daily occurrence. You know, when the, when the when the when the when that that has become manifest in one of the most insidious policies in family separation. Mm-hmm. You know, we've seen it manifest in this extraordinarily evil policy that's actually, you know, separated families. That's put people in in in, 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 in actually incarcerated children. Mm-hmm. It's actually done that. We've seen it. Uh, it's, it's, it's tough for people to, you know, I mean, you know, there's only so much I think people are, are willing to process. Uh, and, and frankly, uh, I think we, the danger is that some people tune, start to tune it out. And that just, that is my concern, uh, going into 2016 or 2020 is that, you know, people start to tune it out to a point where they, um, you know, just are not animated enough about what is going on. And this cat skates by. And, and weirdly, it would be a repeat of 2016. You know, yeah. it would it would just be because I, the, the, another way to put the critique that Ira was making of, of Hillary Clinton is that like uh, if you don't elect me, a racist will be in the White House just wasn't like enough of an argument for a lot of African-Americans, because frankly, there have been so many racists in the White House. Like, why? <laughs> right. You know. <laughs> Like, like that. You, you're going to tell somebody who saw Lyndon Johnson yeah. uh, to say, that, you know, like, you know, don't put a racist in the White House. Right. I, I, you know, I, I mean, I but, can understand that that would be, uh, you know, not necessarily the most persuasive thing. But now that they have seen the, the, the genuine article, um, who knows? Except, as you said, it's just now just it's so we hear it so much. A lot of us may become dead into it, although maybe the problem this time is that, you know, a bunch of well-meaning white per- people are deadened to it. Like, if right. you can animate people of color to, like, really, you know, mobilize and come out and vote and everything, then you just run up the totals in the blue states, right? Right. And also, again, the problem is is potentially purity tests on the left. Mm-hmm. Um, if the right person, the correct person, I should say, on the left for certain people is not nominated, do people stay home? You know? My job as a journalist is not to help these people win elections. My job is to hold these people accountable. I told these people this to their faces. 
but it just doesn't seem that difficult. <laughs> I mean, I, it's just about telling people the truth about what they're going to do for them. And you're not going to win these Trump voters over. So stop trying to win them over. Okay. Stop. Just stop it. If you do win over some of them and then some of them grow conscience and some of them realize how they're getting screwed. Great. That's good for you. Like that's, that's an ancillary benefit. You need to, you have enough people to win the election. You do, you already do. So go get those folks and turn them out. Like, it's just not, it, it, to me, it's, 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 it's that elementary. And, and if you do that, you, you can go ahead and win. And, and part of that is, it, it has to be fundamental to your strategy is fighting voter suppression, period. <laughs> you know, it's doing things like what you're like, we're seeing in, in North Carolina's ninth district right now, which is challenging, you know, these blatant attempts to, to, to Jimmy the voting, the, the election results, you know what I mean? Like it's going to happen. We're already seeing it. To bring full circle, by the way, talk about your false crime reports. Um, the <laughs> allegations yeah. of voter fraud that Republicans make against Democrats, those are your false crime reports. <laughs> you yeah. know, this idea of voter fraud um, being something that's that needs to be policed, whereas the we've seen, you know, what we've seen what voter fraud looks like. It looks like North Carolina. Um and it doesn't, does not, it's not about showing ID at the polls. Right. So. Right. Uh, and, and, and it's, it's so bad in North Carolina that the actual, the Republican candidate himself is actually calling for the new election. <laughs> you know what I mean? Yeah. So I, it's it, to me that, um, I, I, there, there is, there's a tide turning. There's an awareness growing in this country of just how many faults that we have. Um, w- this country was drastically unprepared for a president like Donald Trump. And I think that, you know, the weaknesses have been exposed. The wounds have been, you know, a lot of wounds have been reopened, but a lot of wounds that we like to cover up with American exceptionalism, exceptionalism and a lack of critical thinking have been exposed anew. And we just need to, you know, frankly, go about bandaging them up. And we need to, frankly, pick somebody who's going to go about doing the best job of that um, in the next four years and beyond. And that's what we need to be worried about. We did not, not somebody who's going to fill our heads up with a bunch of bullshit, um, um, and, but somebody who's going to go, go about the, the, the very, very immediate project of trying to fix this country and, and, and get it, you know, frankly, start, start the repairing process. Um, and, you know, I think that this country is capable of a lot of great things. I still believe in the American project, but um, I think, frankly, uh, a lot of people thought, you know, had a mis uh, miscalculation. They thought it was a lot further along than it actually was. And Donald Trump's election, um, I think, is a corrective in that regard. Okay, that's a good place for us to end, I believe. Um, it's not, it's, I think there was some optimism. There was definitely optimism in that. So we had to, I, I want to end there. Thank you so much for being here on short notice. Oh, my pleasure. That's it for the show this week. Sort of in the spirit of how this, this show, you know, was and was not about Jesse Smollett. I, I want to offer uh, a thought that I've had lately, which is that 
it is okay to not have an opinion on something. It is okay to just let some news stories be. I know in today's world of social media, it is so tempting to have an opinion on everything. But I have found it incredibly helpful to remember that my opinions can be formed after I read other people's. And that, again, actually, sometimes maybe my opinion isn't really the point. There are lots of people whose voices should be heard about Jesse Smollett. I'm not sure that mine is one of them. That's why we didn't talk about the case specifically. I think there are a lot of other voices out there that I would like to hear from and that you can find uh, who can speak more to the experience of queer people of color, of people who have actually experienced hate crimes, of people who have survived. I encourage you to look at the With Friends Like These back catalog for some of those voices. Parker Malloy, Charlotte Clymer, and Arjun Sethi are just three. Remember, you can listen to those shows and feel what you feel and think what you think, but you don't have to have an opinion. Not just yet. And that is it for this week. Please, please take care of yourselves.